It's wonderful to be with you this morning. If you've been with us in January, you know we're continuing our series called Loving Others, The Art of Welcoming. And we've talked so far about loving our neighbors, both those across the street and those across the hallway from us. We talked last week about loving our church family. And now as we enter the month of February, we're talking about loving others in our community. Others that we don't necessarily know so well, others who may have different issues than our issues and are different from us. How can we love those as Christ has loved us? That's been our question throughout this whole series. How do we love as Christ has loved us? And it's so important that we do that because the world loves in an entirely different way than what how Christ loved. The world loves in such a manner uh, where we live in a world of transactional relationships, right? I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And yet, the church offers God's unconditional love. So when we offer unconditional love, we are offering something fundamentally different than what people can receive anywhere else because we're offering love that only comes from knowing how God loves you in Jesus Christ. And sometimes for those of us, particularly who live in the southern United States, where we still have a lot of Christians around us, we forget how different Jesus's love was from the love of the world because we just talk about Jesus so much. And honestly, because Jesus has had so much of an impact on our world, we just grew up with it and we didn't realize it was different than what came before. Uh, recently, one of my kids was studying for a social studies test. And I, I love it when they study for social studies tests because uh, I have a fighting chance of helping. You know, when I have to learn to do new math, that's when I'm really on my knees and I'm like, God, if you don't work a miracle, we have no hope. But social studies, I've got a chance. And they were studying Hinduism and the caste system and how there were some people in this system who were untouchables and they were on the lowest rung of society and they weren't really cared about and they had no hope of ever moving up. And my child said to me, how could people be treated like this? How could a society think this is okay? You know what? Before Jesus, everybody thought that was okay. Everybody thought that's, that's just how the, how the world is. Now, you go on. And for a lot of us, we think, of course, everybody should have access to medical care. Now, in our country, we disagree politically about how we can best accomplish that. But I've never met anyone who says, you know, those people, they shouldn't have any medical help. They shouldn't. We agree it should happen. We struggle to figure out how we can best make it happen. Not the case before Jesus. Before Jesus in the Roman Empire, you know what they did when somebody got sick? They locked them in their house for two weeks and they came back two weeks later to see if they were alive. Because they didn't want to catch it, whatever it was. You know what the Christians did? The Christians says, Tell us the people you've locked up in quarantine, we're going to go minister to them, even if it means we catch their diseases. We're going to go care for them. No one should be treated like that because we know that because of the way Christ has treated us. You know what they called that ministry? They called it hospice. It's where we get our word for hospital. Before Jesus, no one felt like every child was valuable. No one felt like every child should be educated. They had a rule back then that if you weren't happy with the gender or the health of your baby, for eight days after they were born, you could take them and just leave them in the cold to die, right? But of exposure. 
And the Christian says, Christian said, that's not right. And the Christians began taking mission trips to the trash dump where they got the babies who'd been left to die and they started caring for them. And that's where the orphanage movement came from. What's more than that, the Christians began looking around one day and they saw that only the kids whose families could afford tuition was getting educated. And they said, that's not right. Because they said, you know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And so, of course, we believe every child should be educated. But if Jesus hadn't come, let me tell you, his love's just different. It's just different. And we have to be reminded how different his love is because we live in a world of transactional love, of transactional relationships. I'll do this for you if you'll pay me this amount of money. If you'll do this for me, then I'll come in and I'll help you out over here. And that's just the way the world works. And it's, it's the way life works. And it has to be that way to some degree. But just don't ever mistake that way of relating for the kingdom of God that Jesus came to show us. Because it's not. It, it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it's not. And when we see the difference, we're reminded that there's nothing as beautiful as Jesus and his kingdom. And there's nothing as worthy of giving our lives to as Jesus and his kingdom. We, we get off track in this in, in so many ways. And uh, we, we see it. Any of y'all watch the show The Office? Right? Any of y'all not want to admit in church that you watch The Office? Yeah, I, I, I know. Um, you, know what I, you know why I think The Office is such a popular TV show? It's because other than this book, it is the best study and research and documentary on sin I have ever seen, right? So I don't watch it for the humor. I watch it because I'm studying, right? <laughs> I'm studying sin. We think of sin as like, oh, the really bad stuff, like dealing drugs or killing people. And there's plenty of shows about that. But what The Office does, if you've ever seen the show, is it shows you how sinful our daily thoughts are right, of how we approach daily interactions with others. Because on the outside, we make ourselves look okay. But then when you see what's really going on on the inside, you're like, oh. And what's, what shakes you up about watching The Office is you watch it and you see how messed up they are. And then you're like, I know someone like that. I know that person. And then you watch it a little longer. And you're like, I know them too. That's me, <laughs> right? I do that. Well, one of my favorite scenes in the office, it's towards the end, the, you know, the series ends with this big wedding. And two of the main characters, Michael and Dwight, they go to check into their hotel room, right? And they're going to check into their hotel for the wedding. They both got rooms. And the person at the desk says, you know, I'm sorry, Michael. It appears your reservation never came through and we're full. We don't have a room for you. So Michael begins talking to Dwight and trying to talk Dwight into allowing Michael to stay in the room with Dwight. And Dwight doesn't want to let Michael stay in his room. And Michael begs and pleads and talks about how much they care about and love each other. And finally, Dwight gives in and says, okay, you can stay in the room with me. And then the person at the desk says, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Michael, you actually have the reservation. Dwight, you do not. And then Dwight says, well, Michael, I can stay in the room with you, can't I? And Michael says, well, now, I don't know. How much would you pay? That's how the world works a lot of times. 
That's what people, that's the reality that people all around us are living with. That's not the church. And that's a big reason why we're here. Because people need to know there's a very different reality in the kingdom of God than in the kingdoms of this world. It's different. And we live in this tribal age when, where you take care of your tribe and everybody else better just figure it out for themselves. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Jesus comes and into a tribal age that he lived in. He came uh, for Jew and Greek, right? The book tells us he came for male and female. He came for slave and free. He came for rich and poor. People say, what, what in the world do we do with somebody like this? We still say that. And I want you to know that, that every day you're caught by the, you are encountered by the false heretical narrative of the world that tells you your identity is based on what you can accomplish and how much you can do for others. <clears throat> and then you have the truth of Jesus Christ, that your identity is based in what God has done for you. And I hope you'll read your Bible every day. Hope you'll read your Bible every day. Hope you go to concordunited.org slash Bible. Pick up the Bible reading plan. Sign up for the daily devotional. Hope you'll, if you don't like the internet, hope you'll pick up a hard copy at the information desk because you got to be reminded that what you're told every day in our culture about where your identity and where your worth comes from, that's not it. And a lot of what our church is here to do is to remind ourselves that and then share that with the world that that's not it. I was talking to a family in our church not too long ago. And they told me, they, they've got an elementary school age daughter. And they said, we came in and uh, one night we hear her whimpering in her bed. She, she hasn't gone to sleep, she's crying. And we peeked in and there's a tiny little light on and she's sitting at her desk. And we wondered what, what in the world's going on. So we, we go on in and, and we say, what, what's wrong, honey? And uh, she was crying because she couldn't write cursive. And why it mattered that she couldn't write cursive was because she was trying to forge her parents' signature on her report card. <laughs> but, but listen, listen, because once I say what's next, you're not going to laugh. They said, honey, wh why didn't you just bring this to us? And she quoted what they had said back to, to her before, back to them. She said, because we don't make C's in this family. And she thought she might not be as worthy, that she might not be as lovable if they knew she made a C. Now, unfortunately for her, there's this thing called online grades. But what do you think they said in that moment? Do you think they said, you got to do better? We expect more. No, 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 no. They said, honey, that's not what it's about. We're so sorry. That's not what it's about. We never wanted you to think that's what it's about or that we, we love you any more or any less because of that. We're proud of what, what you've done. I was talking to another parent in our church a while back and what, what he said just cut me. We were talking about youth athletics and we were talking about how, you know, how, how you get the kids from here to there and make sure you travel and, and do, do all that stuff you're, you're supposed to do and uh, the, the, the blessings and the challenges and how great it is when, when you see your kid have a little success and you see that confidence get built. And they said, but you know, the greatest part of being a parent of an athlete, he said, is you get to watch them fail publicly 
and you get to show them how loved they are when they fail publicly. Because there's going to be a point in their adult life, probably not on the athletic field, when they fail publicly. And you get to create a foundation where when that happens, they'll remember how worthy they are and they'll remember how they're cared about. That's the best part of it. It's not the victories. It's not the home runs. It's that moment. And when he said this to me, I thought, I want to be a Christian like that man. I want to be like that. Because this wor- the love of Christ is so different from the love of this world. Now, I want to tell you today about one of his teachings. That I think when Jesus taught this, uh, it's from the Gospel of Luke. It's right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up with the 14th chapter. I think people literally just looked at him. I think they just looked at him like he had something hanging out of his nose. I I think they just thought, we have no idea what to make of you. Because he goes to this party and he's the guest of honor. And you know how it works with the guest of honor. Everybody wants to talk to the guest of honor at the party. Like if there's like a local celebrity or somebody at the party, you walk in and you have your plan for how you're going to talk to that person. I have a friend and his job is to coordinate a major conference for Christian leaders. And he called me up. And so they bring in these nationally known speakers. He called me up and he said, Will, will you help me with the conference? I need you to serve in this volunteer capacity for me. You know what I said to him? I said, if I can have lunch with the speaker, right? You hook me up with lunch. I get to pick this person's brain. I'll you know, I'll scratch your back, you, you scratch mine. That's how it works. And Jesus knew he was talking to people like me. And he knew he was talking to people like you. Because he was at this party. And all the well-to-do people, they were crowding around, wanting to get a seat by him at the table. And the not as well-to-do people, they kind of knew their place. They were at the bottom of the table, but they were scheming how they could move up. And Jesus tells them, he goes, here's what you should do. When you go to a party like this, don't take the best seat, take the worst one. Give, give somebody else the best seat. That, that's what you should do. Then somebody will look at you and go, wonder what's different about them. Wonder, somebody will look at you the same way I looked at that dad who understood what it meant to have the chance to love your kids uh, when things don't go their way. And say, I want to be like that. That right there. That's what I want to be like. And then Jesus went on. He's like, okay, now here's what to do when you're hosting the party. And we're going to read this exactly as it's translated for us from Luke 14, picking up with verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, I think when Jesus said that, people just looked at him funny. What in the world? Now, there are times when we're going to bless others who can bless us. That's good. We, 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 we should do that. But what he's saying is, is when you do that, they're going to repay you because they're good folks and that's what their mama taught them to do. And so they'll do that. And that's your reward. But when you bless those who cannot bless you, now that's, that's when you're blessed by God. That's when you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Uh, And you'll be paid 
with, in righteousness. And what righteousness is, is right relationship with God. So when you bless those who can't bless you back, you're repaid by getting closer to God. And that's, that's it. And the world may never see the repayment, but you'll receive it. That's, that's what Jesus says. That's why we should do that. So when you bless the already blessed, they pay you back in return. When you bless the cursed who can't pay you back, God repays you back in the long run. And he pays you back with righteousness. And what Jesus is doing here is, again, so different from our world. Jesus, if you look at where this comes in his ministry, it comes several months before he enters into Jerusalem and is crucified and then raises again. Now, you remember, uh, this is within Luke's gospel. You may remember Luke 2. On Christmas Eve, we all gathered in this room. We read Luke 2. We held up our candles and we sang Silent Night. And what does Luke 2 tell us? It says that they had a census. When Caesar Augustus was emperor and Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the world had to go to their hometown to be registered. So Joseph and Mary traveled to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, the city of David. So who have we mentioned there? We mentioned the emperor, we mentioned the governor, and we mentioned the city of David, the great king of Israel. Why did we mention that? Because Jesus came to be the emperor, he came to be the governor, he came to be the king, he came to be the Messiah, he came to have all that, just not like the world thought it worked. And then the angels, shortly after the birth, appear to the shepherds in Luke 2, and they say to you this day in the city of David has been born a Savior, the Lord, the Messiah. And when you hear Messiah, you know what that means. You know that means the King. You know that means the one who's going to be in charge. You know that means the one that the Old Testament spoke of when it says, the government will rest on his shoulders. So the gospel saying, you think all the powers up there in Rome, it's not. It's right here in this child. And the world didn't fully see his power until he went to Jerusalem. Because what happens in Jerusalem is they put this little thing above his head. And uh, it said the charge against him when he was crucified. And you see it sometimes, right? Uh, I-N-R-I. What's that mean? I in uh, Greek, I is the first letter of Jesus. Jesus in Nazareth, R Rex, the word for king, I, the first letter in Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's where he would be made known king through his death and through his, his resurrection. They thought they were putting that charge up to condemn him. They actually, uh, through God's wisdom, used it to tell the world who he is. So he's on this journey to show how, what his kingdom's like, how different it is from Rome. How different it is uh, from even the kingdom of King David that King David had in, in Israel. Jesus is coming to show all that. Now, by the time we get to Luke 14, which we read today, he's a long way down that road. He's several months before his inauguration in Jerusalem through his death and resurrection. And when we have somebody running to be head of the government in our country, president of the United States, you know what happens several months before that? We go through what we're going through right now, which is presidential primary season. And we all know what happens in presidential primary season. I'm going to say this, and I want you to say, I don't say this uh, to be judgmental, because 
this is the greatest country I know of and I don't have a better way. But this is what we do. In presidential primary season, what do the candidates from both parties do? They make promises to their most ardent followers that they know they can't keep, right? That, that's what they do. And uh, then after they get the support of those folks, they begin making compromises with other people in order to get into power. So what we should expect to see Jesus do right now is make his followers just incredible promises that he can't actually keep. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, we should see him meeting behind the scenes with King Herod and the Roman authorities making compromises. That's what we would think. It's not what happens. What does Jesus say to his followers a few months before his uh, uh, inauguration? He doesn't say, I've got a cabinet position for you. He, he doesn't say, I'm going to change the regulations so your business can be lucrative. He says, it's not about you. It's not. If you think this kingdom I came, came so that you could have a place of honor and everybody could look up and clap for you, that's not it. It's not. It's about so you can lift up others. That's what this kingdom is about. And I think they just stared at him. And if I'm honest, sometimes I still just stare at him. Just think that is so different. Because my heart, in many ways, is more like what we see when we watch The Office than what I see when I look at Jesus. And that's why every day I have to get on my knees and I have to say, Jesus, I've sinned. Jesus, there's something rotten inside of me. Jesus, according to my calculations, I can't fix myself, but you can. And here's the other thing you can do. You can love me even before I'm fixed. You can love me at my very worst. I, I could talk about this all day, but you'd get hungry. So I'm going to attempt to not do that. But if you don't hear anything else I say, don't remember something I said. Remember something that years ago, William Temple, the former Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury said, when he says the church is the only organization that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. If we were only here for us, God would shut us down. We've been here for almost 160 years because we've been here for people other than us. The church has existed for almost 2,000 years because we've been here for people other than us. God says, if you ever get about yourselves, I'm not about that. The Old Testament in the Psalms, you know, it says, praise God with tambourine and harp and stringed instruments and drums and lyre and all kinds of stuff. But then later it says, God says, I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your worship music. What? You told us to worship you with music. Then you say you hate our worship music. And you have to realize that when God says he hates it, God says, because, because it became about you. Because it became about lifting you up. And because there are poor people out there and you're not paying a dime of attention to them. So if that's what your religion is about, I don't want it because it's not mine. But here's what mine is. Mine is about loving others as I have loved you. That's what it's about. And if it ever becomes about something about other than that, I've got rocks that I can raise up as a choir. I've got rocks who will give me praise, but I don't want yours unless you're willing for your heart to become like my heart is for you, for you.
for you. I once served a church that the local community uh, was in the lowest 2% of, inc- of median income in the United States. Lowest 2%. And this community was almost destroyed by the opioid epidemic. When there's not much hope, you'll turn to about anything just to make you feel better. And opioids were that thing for a lot of folks. And we ran a big recovery ministry. And there was a man in that recovery ministry, and we're going to call him Patrick, but that's not his name. And he was what in the recovery community would be known as a hard case, right? A hard case. And a hard case is someone that even those who know what it takes to get sober look at and say, we don't think you are constitutionally capable of becoming sober. We know what it takes, and we don't think you are. And so some men in the group came to me and they said, Pastor Will, uh, Patrick's living in squalor. We went to see him the other day and he's living in a pig pen. Nobody should be living in the type of conditions Patrick's living in. And we've taken up an offering, but we don't have enough. And we need the church to kick in a significant amount of resources to help Patrick out. Well, I looked at him and I said, guys, I appreciate it. But this is a significant amount of resources. And we don't have an unlimited amount of resources. And I'm not sure what the return on our investment is going to be. How do we know that in a year's time, Patrick's not going to be right back where he is? And you know what they said to me? They said, Pastor Will, last week you told us that we were supposed to bless those who could never pay us back. And I'd preached on that the week before and look how my heart had changed in a week. And I want to tell you, we worked together to bless Patrick. And Patrick never got sober. But Patrick died, lived the rest of his days. And Patrick died in a clean home, in a place where he had enough to eat. And with people who checked on him and treated him as if he was a dignified human being. He lived like, he, that was how he finished his life. Because there was a group of people who said, it's not about us. We're here for those who can never pay us, pay us back. That's why this church is here. In the early days of Methodism, pastors weren't appointed to local churches. They were appointed, appointed to communities. Because the Methodists believed God was sending them for the whole community not just the people who were in the church. And the, the point of the churches was to, to reach out beyond themselves. That's, that's still the case for, for each of us today. When you look at this church, and I cannot tell you how thankful I am for this church. But I can't tell you how thankful. If, if I weren't a pastor at this church, I would attend this church. I would raise my children at this church. I can't tell you how thankful I am for those of you who work in our student ministry, who are blessing my kids who are in middle and high school. I can't tell you how thankful I am for those of you who work in our uh, children's ministry, who are blessing my youngest child and blessed my family as we raised our children through that ministry. I can't tell you how thankful I am for those of you who see my family and talk to them and lift them up in prayer. I can't tell you how thankful I am for this church and just the chance to be a part of it. It blesses me every single day. But I also 
know this, that the point of this church is not just to bless those of us inside of it. It's to bless those of us outside of it. And God gave us this church so that our community might know that he loves them this much, right? God gave us this church so that our community might know he loves them this much. That's why we're here. And you know if you've been here, there are a hundred ways that we share almost every week that you can sign up to bless others in this church and to bless others in our community who will never be able to pay you back. But it's not even just about that. It's about doing that in our daily lives. When we have the chance at home, when we have the chance in our neighborhood, when we have the chance at work to have that kind of heart because the life I want to live and I'm guessing the life you want to live is one of those lives where you're going to be someone God calls upon in those moments when somebody's broken. In those moments where somebody's like that elementary age girl who's saying, we don't make C's in our family. And so I've done something and I'm not sure if I'm worthy anymore of being a part of this family. Because people have stuff like that and it's much more serious than a grade. And I want to be somebody who they look at and who says, no, no, no. Let me tell you how this family really works. What you hear out there about transactional relationships, that's real in our world, but it's not real in the kingdom and it's not real in the church. What, what you experience about there, about your worth being defined on how well you do on this or that, there, there's, some, there's a greater reality. There's something much greater. And it came from this man who knew how the world worked and he knew how the kingdom of God worked. And he wanted to teach his disciples how different it was and so what he did on the night before he was to give his life, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to his father. And he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you, father. And then he gave it to his disciples. He said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so friends, if you want to come and receive this type of love, this love that loves us not just at our best, but also at our worst, then all you have to do is come forward to this table. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. You don't have to have been baptized. You just have to say, Jesus, I want to receive your love that forgives me. Jesus, I want to be made more like you so that just as you've loved me at my worst, I can love others at their worst. If that's what you want, then this table is open to you. In a few moments, you'll be invited to, to come forward. At that time, we want you to know there's a gluten-free station right in the middle at, at this table, and you're welcome to come to that if you need those elements. You'll If you sit in the, the center sections, you're going to come by the center aisle and you'll be served. If you sit in the side sections, you're going to come by the side aisle and you'll be served. But as is tradition in the Christian family, we always begin our experience of communion with a prayer. And we're going to close this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to confess our sins to you today. We come to confess how far we are removed from the love of Christ 
how much we have lifted up ourselves and looked out for ourselves and how much we have treated others as if their worth depended upon their performance. God, we're thankful that you haven't treated us like that. We're thankful that you have loved us unconditionally. Teach us to love like that. Forgive us, we pray. Make us more like you in all that we have seen in you. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Let them be for us the body of Christ redeemed by his blood that we might be for the world the body of Christ sharing his love until you come in final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquet. May all honor and glory, all power and praise be yours, almighty God, now and forever as we join our prayer with the prayer Christ taught his first disciples praying together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United, and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org. We also invite you to download and enjoy our daily devotional podcasts presented by the pastors and members of Concord United. Finally, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast so that others can discover it and benefit from it.